Welcome back. COVID yep. bonus 11. So this, we are going to summarize all of the articles that were published between July 20th and whatever, five days after that is, <laughs> last week. Yes. Yes. I couldn't tell if you were going to go. <laughs> I was going to, and then I thought, well, maybe you want to. Yeah. Go for it. Well, the first one was actually by Weiss et al., and this is actually a preprint, uh, seroprevalence of SARS-CoV-2 antibodies in an entirely PCR-sampled and quarantined community. So basically what happened is this... The, the Conan study. Yeah. Conan. It, it literally is called Conan. Ooh, neat. Sorry. But uh, <laughs> it's actually uh, antibody testing in a village in Germany that had actually been quarantined and shut off from everything for six weeks after the SARS outbreak. And they found that only 53% of the participants six weeks later who had previously had confirmed infections by PCR had any antibodies left. So half the people, six weeks, antibodies gone. So that's not good because that means you can get sick again. And again, we've seen cases of that. So yeah, so it does happen. We are waiting for more information on again. And if we read every single one of these articles to you all, it would be all over the map as far as how long it lasts, these antibodies, but none of them look very great as far as that. Okay, so this um, this is the recovery trial. We did talk about this when it was still a preprint. Now it is officially published July 17th in the New England Journal of Medicine. So back to this, it's open label, and we're talking about the dextromethorphan study. No, dexamethasone. Oh, I said dextromethorphan because I literally just wrote it down on the I mean, I suspect, Yeah, I suspect some of them were coughing. <laughs> I don't think they've really got, yeah, Robitussin. Anyway, excuse me, dexamethasone. And they did show that the 28-day mortality was lower in the patients who did get the steroid. Um, you know, based on the usual care, looking at ventilation, supplemental oxygen without ventilation, but not among those who did not have any respiratory support. So basically, the more severe people did better if they got dexamethasone. However, as we said the first time we discussed this when it was a preprint, they didn't, it, the age groups and kind of how they separated these two groups, it wasn't as um, case based or case matched participants from the dexamethasone group versus the non-dexamethasone group. Yeah. So shows a little bit of promise needs more, more studies. Study. You better do Zoo et al. This was actually a study in Lancet, The Lancet. The Lancet. But you like this one, so I'm I letting did. you talk. I guess I remember what I said. Okay, so phase two trial of this vaccine, of COVID vaccine. I'm not going to try to name it because it doesn't really matter. And they're really looking at how how this vaccine, of course, did. And so both doses that they use, whether it's the high dose or the low dose of this vaccine, induce significant, don't know what that means, neutralizing antibody responses. So the neutralizing antibody, of course, is what we want. That is the antibody that's going to neutralize the infections. And the antigen-specific T-cell response, also, of course, part of the, the response you want, was observed in 88 to 90% of people who did get the vaccine. Basically, they all got the common vaccine reactions, nothing but no significant side effects. But this is promise. Again, we don't exactly know how long this is going to last. But as we kind of mentioned this last week with Mike Osterholm, he said, call him Mike. So I'm going to because he's my friend now. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. You need, you know, 
70% of people or 60% of people to have this, you know, kind of herd response so people are protected. So if this persisted, these percentages, this would be a good thing. Yes. You just wanted to say this dude's name, which is yes. why you let me do Bilalaglu. Bilalaglu et al. This Jamma. is actually uh, in JAMA. JAMA. Thrombosis in hospitalized patients. This was really cool because they took the first, well, they just took patients as they came, 3,300 of these people, and they found that the consecutive patients, 533 of these people, ended up having a thrombotic event during their routine clinical care. And interestingly, Routine clinical care for COVID. Yes. And they, they uh, age, sex, Hispanic ethnicity, coronary disease, previous infarction, blah, blah, blah. And higher D-dimer levels at the hospital presentation were associated with the thrombotic event. So if you had one of those things, you had more likely, were more likely had the, the clotting trouble. But here's the kicker, that all-cause mortality was higher in those who had the thrombotic events by twice as much. Yes, so forty three percent versus twenty one. So you don't want that PE. The yeah, the clotting thing. If you remember anything today from this entire podcast, clotting good. Oh, hold it, clotting <laughs> bad, not clotting good. This is why we don't edit because it's hilarious. Yeah, no, I. It's just it's not good. So. All right, go. All ahead. right, so we're moving on. This is is a preprint Golanelli. So that's another fun one. This is looking back at the blood type thing. And so what they found, this is quick systematic review meta-analysis. SARS-CoV-2 was positive in individuals, more likely to people who had A-type blood and less likely in people who had O-type blood. And this was looking at seven studies with 7,500 people and over almost 3 million controls. And so if you have blood type A, you're more likely to have COVID, it doesn't necessarily say good or bad or ugly, then if you have blood type O, you're less likely. I got to find out what I am. I'm A positive. A plus, like my report cards. <laughs> You've got like a week to live. Next, we had uh, <laughs> a little thing on the smell and taste changes, and we've seen this. It's pretty cool. Uh, but Ryder et al. did this in American Journal of Otolaryngology. Ooh. Easier said than... Ooh. Done. And basically what they, they showed was that when they talked to people who had lost their sense of smell and taste, that 67% of it got it back in a month, and 73%, and that was, well, I'm sorry, let me start over. As far as their smell, mm-hmm. uh, their smell was good at 67% in a month, and the taste returned at a, in 73% in that time to very good or good. Um, I've actually talked to somebody who still doesn't have it back. It's been a couple months. Hmm. So takes a little time. You know, I've had a few that, you know, a couple of weeks and they're like, maybe. And I think it's just because they're paying attention to it and they're like hoping. But if they only lost one of the senses, it's even harder because, you know, they all kind of play together. And I've tested people who had no, who felt like they had no taste and smell that were negative. Right. And is that the test that's bad or are we all going crazy and every time we bite into something, you're like, I didn't taste that. Right. I don't know. All right. So moving on. Scientific Reports Journal. This is Yuan. 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 Um, basically looked at how long people can be retested. You know, so this is the nasal swab. This is the PCR and remain positive after, you know, they left the hospital. So these are all hospitalized patients looked at one or two weeks after hospital discharge. Um, none of the patients when they were reswabbed had any symptoms left. 
the people who were more likely to be negative on respawn were the people who were more sick. And that's, you know, is that just that antibody response and you were more sick, you had a better immune response and your body knocked it out faster or what? But yes, so the more severe people did not test positive after discharge. Mm. Next one was in the Lancet of Public Health. And this guy's name is Kretz Schmar at Al. He's German. I'm guessing. And he did a little thing on the impact of delays on the effectiveness of contact tracing strategies. And what? There's delays? Oh, God, is there delays? <laughs> so, so he does this whole thing that says, with a delay of three days or longer in testing and tracing, even complete coverage of contacts was not sufficient to get the R values below one, meaning that you'd only give it to one other person which would lead to a decline in the epidemic. So it's taken us seven to 10 days. I don't know. I mean, by the time I get it back, these people have married and had children. <laughs> <laughs> so. Which is funny because I was just going to say, like, if you're a week late, it's never a good thing unless you're trying to get pregnant. You're calling people and they've already, <laughs> yeah. So You yeah. totally missed my joke there. <laughs> I know I did. But I'm just saying that that because of the reagent issues and the supply issues, supply chain issues, we are still lacking that ability to turn it around in two or three days and make a difference from contact tracing. Right. Bottom line, Minnesota. Okay. So this next one is comes from Ashraf, um, the Journal <laughs> of Reproduction and Infertility. And this is looking at pregnancy and the possibility of vertical transmission. And so they looked at pregnant women and neonates. So there were 21... Um, Studies that were looked at in this this kind of meta review, 90 pregnancies with 92 babies um, that, that came out. And most common symptoms in pregnant women, fever, cough, difficulty breathing, which makes sense. Three of the moms of the 90 were required, you know, were sent to the ICU and required vents. One mom did not make it. Um, and then at the time of publication, there was still one mom who was in the ICU. So obviously a majority of these women, 86 of the 90 did not end up in a unit with ventilation. Um, basically, the most commonly reported issues, preterm labor in 29, fetal distress in 15, premature rupture of membranes in 6, choreo, so infection in the fluid and around the baby, 1, stillbirth in 1. And this is what's interesting. So 4 out of 86 neonates, so 5% of the babies tested um, were positive. So not a huge percentage, but... One of them was negative at birth and positive 24 hours later, so that would speak against vertical transmission. Um, and then another one, the amniotic fluid sample was positive, but cord blood was negative. So, again, does not look like vertical transmission, but they didn't really comment on these other two. So, you know, we talked about an article last week where there was vertical transmission, the first reported case. So is this potential more Happening more than we think. All right, next one. Actually, a preprint, McLaughlin et al., and this was kind of an interesting thing they looked at in Blaine County, Idaho. And they had a resort community that had very high incidence of COVID-19 in March and April. And they did a prevalence study and found that 23% of the residents actually had antibodies. But interestingly, this suggested that they'd actually not tested or that basically the there was 80% of the SARS-CoV infections were not reported, obviously not tested. Right. So <laughs> they only identified the people that came in was only 20% of the actual cases. So, I mean, you could look at this two ways. You could look at it as, do we not have testing capabilities so we didn't diagnose them because we couldn't? 
Or were a lot of these people just not sick enough that they thought they needed to come in? Probably both. Probably both. Um, Are we doing this last one on here? Yeah, the JAMA Intro Medicine Havers. Havers and Havers. Oh, yeah, we are. Haver (laughs) Knots. So did a report cross-sectional seroprevalence survey on a convenience sample of that's that's an interesting way of saying that. Mm. Um, residual sera collected. So whatever was left over, <laughs> basically. So rather so than retesting people, they just used what was left in the lab. Well, those guys just go around to, bu- to different labs. They're like, hey, you got any extra blood? It's like, yeah. yeah, I'll take it. I'm a vampire and creepy. But anyway, so they looked at this leftover serum from March 23rd to May 12th in a lot of areas. San Francisco, Connecticut, South Florida, Louisiana, Minneapolis, St. Paul, St. Cloud. So the whole like major three cities in our state. Missouri, New York City, metro area, Philadelphia, metro area, Utah, and western Washington state. So 16,025 individuals. The seropositivity ranged from anywhere between 1%, which was in San Francisco, to 7% in New York City. Again, you need 60% zero prevalence, zero positivity to have, you know, any kind of protection. So not there yet. And I think, you know, Dr. Osthome mentioned last week, sorry, Mike mentioned last week in Minnesota, as of now, we're at about 2.5%. Yeah, I'm like, Mike, no way. Mike. Yeah. No way. What a nice guy. All right. So let's move on to Morocco, the Journal of Urban Health. I just love these journals. I know. I got to get that one. So they did a little ecologic <laughs> because study. Because we live in Little Falls, you need the Urban Health Journal. Yeah, I need the Urban Health Journal. This was an ecologic study of COVID-19 hotspots. And the reason we're talking about this one is because it was so different between New York City and Chicago. And they looked at the hotspots and zip codes that with lower rates, these college graduates. And, and really what they were doing uh, when they looked at this is that they found that New York City hotspots tended to be more working class and middle income neighborhoods. Well, interestingly, in Chicago, their hotspots occurred more commonly among the neighborhoods with the highest rates of poverty and unemployment. Uh, so, totally different uh, situations in two different cities. So, two different large cities. Yeah. So Very interesting. Just, just more interesting than. <laughs> you know, I mean, what does it mean? Does not help us know. in Little Falls, but no. actually, I wanted to go back to that last city I just read because it just the study kind of reminded me of it again, where we just looked at all the the serum that was left over, and I thought it was funny that they used like San Francisco, which is a city, versus Connecticut, which is a whole state, which is South Florida, which is part of a state. That whole study looked at so many different ways of breaking up a state. I just thought that was interesting. Thanks for dropping back. <laughs> okay, we're gonna move on. Um, journal of Maternal, Fetal, and Neonatal Medicine. I've actually seen this journal. I'm not going to lie. Barbero et al., July 20th, 2020. So we're looking at women diagnosed with COVID during pregnancy or in the postpartum period. Now we're looking at 91 women in a tertiary center in Spain. So we're back to Europe. Presenting symptoms only in 62% of people. So the people who came into the hospital with symptoms of COVID, 62% of these 91 women. 40 patients uh, developed pneumonia, 46% were hospitalized, four got in the ICU, which was double the hospitalization and ICU admission for non-pregnant female patients of the same age in Spain. You know, they said initially that pregnancy does not increase your risk for contracting COVID. Um, I mean, they've said that since we started talking about maternal health in COVID, but at least this study, small number, 
makes it look like maybe it doesn't increase your risk of getting it, but maybe it gives you a more significant disease, which to me makes sense. Um, and then, of course, the C-section rates were much more robust, three times higher among women that had COVID than women who were hospitalized for other reasons. So I, I'm still stuck on the fact this was in Spain because when I was growing up, my mom always made Spanish rice. And I'm thinking, if this is what they're eating over there, I'm never visiting. All I keep thinking of is the rain in Spain that you always say. Yeah, well, Spanish rice, not eating it. I okay. That Spanish rice was Mex from Mexico, which is weird. But anyway. Makes no sense. So Moving next on. we're going to, oh my goodness, this is uh, a multi-center clinical study in transfusion and aphoris science. Aphoresis. Aphoresis. Ooh. So basically this is a prospective study. And oh, the you got to say You got to say A bolt. A bulgofacimi, I can't say that. A bulg, no, I'm not even going to try. It's a very tough name. But anyway, they did a pro prospective uh, cohort study, and this was actually in Iran. Uh, and they compared the, the control group to participants that got convalescent plasma. There was actually 115 people in this study. And then they looked at what were the difference in discharge. So if you didn't get discharged, that meant things went bad. <laughs> poorly. So 98, yeah, poorly. 98% of the people who got uh, uh, convalescent plasma were discharged. 79% were not. Uh, no, no, 79%. 98% were discharged if you got the plasma. Correct. Compared to the ones who didn't get the plasma, only 79% were discharged. I thought that's what I said, but... You kind of did, but it was a little confusing. Okay, and they also had a shorter mean length of hospitalization if they got the convalescent plasma, plasma uh, by almost three days, a little over three days. So... Well, and look at the innovation. I know. I mean, it's like a third of the people got intubated to got convalescent plasma comparatively. So so it appears that convalescent plasma might be a good thing. Small study, though. Small All study, right. and we'll get to that later in the week. I think how do you, you know, convalescent plasma sounds like, okay, let's do it. It's not as no-brainer as it sounds. We'll get to that. Hmm. Not yet. So we're looking at he et al. Journal of Medical Virology. Again, another systematic review. Forty-one studies, fifty-five thousand one hundred fifty-five cases, and the estimate is that sixteen percent of COVID cases are asymptomatic across all age groups. What? There's asymptomatic cases or pre-symptomatic or pre-symptomatic because they found the higher percentage of asymptomatic children. So, twenty-eight percent asymptomatic findings in kids. Um, people who were initially asymptomatic, so 180 of these people who were followed over time, half of them actually subsequently developed symptoms. So were they just in that pre-symptomatic or were they in the phase where it's like, do I have a sore throat? Do I not? That whole like wavering between am I really sick or not? And so it's that whole asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic stuff. Well, then we go to Lancet Psychiatry. And uh, Pierce et al., at least it was an easy name, they had a web survey, and actually it was big, 17,000-plus people in the U.K. And they were kind of looking at the population prevalence of basically significant levels of mental distress. So they should come here. Um, and it <laughs> <laughs> Like here to the U.S., Minnesota, or this table. <laughs> yeah, the table. Uh, this, and basically the distress rose from 19% of people who would say they were in distress in 2018 and 19, to 27% in April of 2020. Um, and that was actually a month into the UK lockdown. So I think that people were really feeling that stress. The people that seemed to be more affected were young people, 
ages 18 to 34. Too young for Dr. Bell. She's over that. You're like double that. And women. (laughs) And, and of course, people living with young children. I was with my kids in a camp, my grandkids in a camper for two days. I'll agree with that one. Uh, People living with young children, there's distress. So He likes to think he has so much distress. I live with four kids all the time. Yeah, but in a camper. All right, go to Wang. Wang et al., Emerging Infectious Diseases Journal, July 21st, built a COVID transmission model for Austin, Texas, looking at age-stratified risks, contact patterns, healthcare system factors, and found that a two-week delay, so if you delayed at all in implementing extensive social distancing or as Mike said, physical distancing, um, could accelerate the timing of the peak healthcare needs by four weeks, meaning you're going to have trouble with beds and ICU units. But school closures did not affect the epidemic curve. So what you're saying is my kids are going back to school in, what, five weeks? I don't know. We're moving to Austin, Texas. (laughs) All right. The next one, uh, it's preprint, actually, uh, out of Brazil. And the bottom line, Baumgartner et al. found basically this, is that if you've got a big city and you've got neighborhoods within that city, you do better at controlling COVID if you go to neighborhood to neighborhood, working with a neighborhood to lock down than doing something citywide. Right. And if you're going to bring that down to a smaller community, like Little Falls should not hang out with peers, should not hang out with Randall. Like if you kept your community, yep. if if we were back in like Kurt's childhood where nobody left their actual town, we'd be okay. Yeah, you couldn't drive. You'd take a horse. So, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I had to get that. But yeah, in there. it's just interesting that they found it was more effective to go neighborhood to neighborhood and have the neighborhoods work together, a neighborhood work together to control it. But I think it's also a way of looking at it as you could still then maybe socialize within your neighborhood as long as nobody left the neighborhood, which could then help with that isolation and mental distress we just talked about. Yes. Okay, moving on. Cell, Horber et al. I'm going to do this one because I don't think you get it. Nope. Okay, so the original virus, when COVID came out, was had this spike protein that was called D, as in dog, 614. Pretty much the most common one around now is what we call G, 614. So the G is what we have now. The problem is, is what you're seeing is with this new um, mutation in the spike protein that we have currently, you have much more viral spread, um, higher infectious titers. Um, so basically, more the shedding. virus more shedding. The virus got smarter. Yep. Sheds better. All yeah. right. We're moving Ooh, this on. This is a complicated one. The next one is out of nature. And it was we actually, look super smart in this one, and I hope your brother's listening. Yeah, my brother kind of liked hydroxychloroquine. Hoffman et al. Basically, you, you just said the whole H word again. I know I said it by accident. And this is actually something done on chloroquine. But the bottom line in this study is that they looked at the this cellular protease gene that activated the SARS-CoV-2 to enter into lung cells, right? And so this was the area that chloroquine was supposed to block the infection at. That's where it was supposed to be effective. And the authors actually in their study concluded that, well, that didn't happen. It uh, Chloroquine actually didn't block that. And so it's a bust. It was a really great theory, though. It was a I good mean, theory. if you're thinking like we have no treatments for COVID and you're back in, you know, the olden days like March and you're like, we have this drug that can block 
the virus getting into a cell, like that seems like a no brainer, but not to be too uh, negative, but if they're doing all these studies on sewage, like they are on COVID, uh, they probably got to find a lot of chloroquine there because people are flushing it. That's a joke. Yeah, okay, never mind. Um, next study. I'm glad you said it, the PG version, rather than the version you told us before. Yeah. Okay, this one comes out of MMWR. Um, wow, Razagi. I love that. At all, estimated county-level prevalence of selected underlying medical conditions associated with increased risk. So we've, of course, talked about all these Underlying comorbid issues, COPD, heart disease, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, and obesity. Ironically, so they looked at these same five comorbidities across the U.S. in different areas. Well, what they found is if you have these comorbidities, it's not the same everywhere across the U.S. Um, These comorbidities are much higher and more prevalent in the southeastern U.S., and in more rural counties, which we know. We know that, like, rural Minnesota, you're older, you're sicker, just People retired to their cabin. I don't know. And um, so, yes, so southeastern U.S., more rural communities. They've actually made county-level maps to support local decision makers in identifying these areas at higher risk. So basically, you just need to do your community assessment. And if you have a lot of older people who have all these comorbidities, your chances of having more severe disease, of course, is higher. Okay, the next one. Oof, we got to be careful here. Journal of Clinical Medicine by Cabello. <laughs> yeah. uh, this is actually a group of experts from Spain, uh, the Spanish Association of Sexuality and Mental Health. And they did a little thing about uh, some <laughs> consensus recommendations to maintain the lower risk sexual activity during COVID 19, uh, this whole pandemic thing. So, right? I don't think they mean that you can get COVID no. through. The fluids, because we've read studies. But they're just talking about return, you know, that that their recommendation is to include returning to engaging in safe sex for those with a stable partner after the quarantine is over. Uh, so everybody's got to be out of quarantine to still go and back And not like to, lockdown. This is you were sick or potentially yeah. sick, you're in isolation. And that, that who's ever involved, it says, and if all parties, so uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, need to be asymptomatic. And and they recommend abstinence as, uh, you know, really for those under quarantine uh, who have any clinical symptoms uh, or for professionals in contact with COVID-19 and during pregnancy. So nobody having nobody who's pregnant should be having sex at all during COVID. That's what it says. But for persons without a partner, it is strongly recommended not to initiate sexual activity with a sporadic partner. <laughs> so it's just mono here, I think. Um that so yeah I mean that's their recommendations and we've got to give it yeah the you know, thumbs up on that I uh, thumbs up no comments. okay let's move on I had, I had a couple all right Lancet Child and Adolescent Health okay we're going younger now uh, Salvatore I love that also um, neonatal management of outcomes so now we're back to these babies. 1,481 deliveries, New York Presbyterian Hospital, between March 22nd and May 17th. That's a lot of deliveries in that short of time. Wow. I mean, think about it. I think Little Falls, that would take 10 years. Yeah. Anyway, 116. So 8% of the moms tested positive for COVID, which then was 120 neonates. So we had four sets of twins in there. Um, All the neonates, so all the newborns were negative for COVID at 24 hours of life. So this study would go kind of against the one we just talked about. 
This one would point against vertical transmission, but again, it's baby-specific, I guess. Um, they did receive a repeat test at five to seven days. 96% of those remained negative. 88% of them who were tested at 14 days remained negative. So some of them did contract, but not obviously from birth. No, no infants, even the ones that did test positive later on, developed any symptoms. 83% of patients, even these babies, stayed in the rooms with their moms who were positive. So that's amazing. And 78% actually breastfed. And Well, no, I lied. 83% breastfed. 78% still were breastfeeding at a week later. So when you're like a pro breastfeeding advocate, like I am, this is cool. Yeah. You might as well do the convalescent plasma one because you kind of like this one and it's it's kind of messy. It's above his head. So this is in the Journal of Eurosurveillance, Harvala et al. So they looked at plasma. It's actually Harvala. Harvala? Harvala. No, it's mm. European. You're going to emphasize that second. I'm just telling you where I grew up, there was Harvala Electric. Okay, but we're That's in Europe. You, you emphasize the second syllable. All right, go ahead. Anyway, they looked at convalescent plasma donation. So 436 people who had donated plasma, who 59% of them had confirmed positive, 41% had suspected positive. Um, so they donated their blood in the UK. 87% of them were positive for IgG antibodies. 76% were positive for neutralizing antibodies. So this is all great. Um, but the whole bottom line here is that the neutralizing antibody titer, so this again is what we want, that were high enough to be able to use for COVID, was actually in 34% of the donations. So even though you are positive and you want to donate, only about a third of people actually had enough of these antibodies to, to be helpful. Um, and the way that the people who are more likely to be able to, to make a true donation because they had high enough levels had had a more recent diagnosis. So again, speaking to that whole as... We go further away from infection, the titers drop. Those who are older and those who had actually been hospitalized and obviously those that had a confirmed positive. So, Yeah, so they decline over so three Kurt, months. Kurt, when you get COVID and you get hospitalized, you'll be a good donor because you're old. Yep, I'll be just giving blood away. <laughs> no, you won't. I hate that. Okay. <laughs> that's, a big, that's a big needle. Um, so <laughs> we're going to go to JAMA. And uh, this was by Vander, Vandermaid. Vandermaid. Vandermaid, 2020. Presence of genetic variants among men with severe COVID. This oh, is I'm actually. Glad a, you're doing this because this is like. Oh, I like this. This is two sets of brothers. And it's very interesting that these brothers were under the age of 35 but and really had no pre existing medical conditions. But all four of them went to the hospital and got really sick. And in fact, one died. Uh, all four men ended up on a ventilator. And they started looking into some of the genetics of this and this whole exome sequencing. And uh, basically, you just sounded really smart. I know, whole exome sequencing. And basically, what they found is they had loss of function of an X chromosomal gene variant. Uh, it was actually TLR7, which I have no idea what that is. Uh, and that was associated with impaired type 1 and type 2 interferon response. So basically, they had an X linked genetic thing that basically stopped them from making the interferon. They needed to fight this off. And they all got severe And they ventilated. got really sick. So uh, we have to think that really at some point this might be an important thing that are we all a little different there and does that affect our outcome? Okay, so my take on this is this is an X-linked thing, and this is maybe why men tend to get more severe diseases because they only have one X chromosome. 
And so if you have this variant, you're screwed. Whereas women, we have a backup. Seriously, I don't want another ex. So um, <laughs> let's go to Elmer. Okay, so Elmer, um, this is from PLOS One Journal. This is looking at a social network in Sweden. And so basically they looked at these college students, people who were very obviously Swiss undergrad students um, before and during the pandemic, and that found that social networks obviously sparser during the pandemic, students more likely to be isolated. Um, friendships really didn't differ between the two periods, however – there were definitely some differences, and if people had good, strong social ties, they they did okay, but people who didn't necessarily have as good as social ties felt a lot more isolated most of the time. More people were depressed and anxious and all the typical things. However, some students actually thought that the crisis made their lives better because they no longer felt that they were missing out, and they no longer felt the competition among other students. So there's this whole fear of missing out, which if you have, if you're a mom of young kids, you call FOMO when your newborn doesn't let you sleep because they don't want to like miss out on TV or whatever. Okay, I don't get it. I just think it's interesting. If you were a very social person with a tight knit group, this created some kind of distress and issues because you felt more isolated, yet you still had some support just at a distance. But the kids that didn't necessarily have that group felt better because they didn't feel like they were missing anything. Okay. Lastly, uh, this is from Octa Biomedica, and this was by Signorelli. That's a cool name. Sounds now, like Cinderella. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's very interesting, mostly because uh, this was a mortality rate that was done in a in the Lombardy region of Italy, Oof. and that's my peeps. My mom was that <laughs> Lombardy. So basically, what they did is they analyzed uh, mortality rates and case fatality in nine kind of high-income metropolitan regions in Europe and the U.S. And all these places had a very similar socio-demographic characteristics, and most of them were kind of daytime commuting populations with business activities. And basically the crude mortality rate was highest for the people in Italy, uh, and New York State had the, had the highest mortality rate. So New York still is, like, number one. I mean, it's... The mortality rate there was just off the off the charts compared to everywhere else. Yep. But then there's that article we read last week that said, you know, the top five states anticipated. 60%, New York was, yeah. But New York was not on that top five. Well, they don't think it's going to be on the top five by the time that's over. Well, that's what I meant. Yep. So, I, you know, whatever. Good job, Governor Cuomo, basically. Yep. So we're going to move on until next week, at least until Tuesday. And we'll let Battle Eggs take over, and we will talk with you soon.